Hello, I'm Jim Mallard, host of The Mallard Report. On The Mallard Report, along with my guest, we will have a conversation where we will share thoughts and opinions. For more information, my bio, past shows, social media links, and so much more, visit mallard.com. M-A-L-L-I-A-R-D dot com. And thanks for listening. I want to thank everybody for joining me this evening. Big milestone. We'll get to that later. It's show number 400, but that doesn't matter. My guest is more important than that. But first, we must pay the bills because without any, if we don't pay the bills, none of this is possible. Uh, VeritasApparel.com slash Mallard. Get your 10% off your, your T-shirts. Um, free shipping, made in the USA, all the important stuff. Go over to VeritasApparel.com slash Mallard. Or come over to Mallard.com and click the big banner ad and it takes you right there. Okay. John... Kariaku, did I do it? You did it. Yes. First, I, I, I got to say, you know, I was reading through this stuff, and today I noticed something that didn't register with me until today. When I first skimmed your stuff, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is great. I didn't realize that you grew up in Newcastle. I I'm did. A, I'm literally in Franklin, which, you know, is like, what, yeah. 40 minutes away. Yeah. So great. I'm like, really? So that, that kind of, you know, everything... <laughs> So, how, okay, so you, you moved to D.C., so how much different is it? Tell the guy who's still here. Oh, my God. Uh, well, you know, to tell you the truth, I, I couldn't wait to leave Newcastle. I loved Newcastle. It was a great place to grow up and a um, great place, you know, for, for parents to raise a family. But it was just too small town for me. I, I just needed to get out. So I left the week after I turned 18, and I moved to Washington to go to college. And I essentially never left. It was it was the best thing I ever did. So I've got one more new classical question for you, and it, it referenced Chuck Tanner. Oh, Chuck! Chuck was a good friend of my dad's, and so uh, every summer, well, for for your listeners who don't know, Chuck Tanner was the legendary manager of the Pittsburgh Pirates. Uh, so each summer, Chuck would invite us uh, into the Pirates locker room on his birthday, which was July Fourth. So we would always go to the July Fourth doubleheader. They would do a cake in between games out on the field, and then uh, he would meet us down there in the locker room and just let us act like autograph hounds, my brother and I. <laughs> I still have all those autographs. Well, I had the pleasure, well, let's see, more years ago than I care to remember at this point, um, of sitting through a, an inning of baseball of him at PNC Park. I got to know the um, head of security at PNC Park, and he says, I got somebody you got to meet. And I said, okay. And he's like, Go say hi to Chuck Tanner. I went, oh, yeah, sure. And I, you know, he, I just went, went over and said, hey, he's like, hey, sit for a minute. I'm like, oh, cool. And we just sat there and talked baseball. And he's like, I went to get up at the inning break, because you know, half inning break, because I'm like, oh, you know, took enough of this time. He's like, the people I'm with aren't going to be back for a while. Just sit some more. I'm like, okay. So I sat there another inning. And by that time, they were back. And I, I said, thanks. You know, we took a picture and off we went. So that's my Chuck Tanner story. In fact, I'm looking right now in my bookcase behind me at a, at a Chuck Tanner autographed baseball. He said he was such a great guy. And you know, he went back to Newcastle. He never, he never left Newcastle. Even when he was managing the white Sox and the athletics, he still lived in Newcastle. And before, before he went into management and in between assignments at major league teams, uh, he was the photographer in charge of all the school pictures in town. That's how my dad got to meet him. My dad was a, a principal, and they became really good friends. And then Chuck's daughter was my babysitter when I was a little kid. So, uh, yeah, really great guy. And then when he left the Pirates and retired, he opened up a restaurant in Newcastle, uh, Chuck Tanner's. That's the name of it. And uh, and then sold it just before his death, but it's it's still going strong as Chuck Tanner's. Well, something I need to do this weekend, maybe, huh? Get over there. And, and honestly, the food is terrific. Well, there you Okay, I, you know, being a bigger guy, I know you can appreciate some food, so I'm a bigger guy myself, so there it is. Solid validation. <laughs> <laughs> so, not the reason I brought you on, though, but a cool coincidence nevertheless, because, you know, you get to talk to people from all over the country and all over the world, but not many of people uh, understand these local nuances like like we do, so... So, I, yeah. 
So do I want to start backwards or forwards with you? Because I'm thinking I've got all this stuff, this current Edward Snow and stuff, and you've got all your stuff. Where do you want? Do you, do you have a preference where we go first? Yeah, let's talk about the the newer stuff. I think it's really important. I think we're at a, a dangerous crossroads right now. Yeah, because I mean, I thought we've been. I thought we were through there, but now I'm, I mean, with Snowden coming back in play, I thought, I'm not sure even what to think anymore. I spoke. I spoke to Ed Snowden a couple of weeks ago, a little bit more than a couple of weeks ago. We uh, we were on a panel together at NYU's London campus. They piped him in on Skype, of course. And um, before the thing got started, we had a nice conversation, and he told me that one of his greatest fears is becoming irrelevant. That people have forgotten the public service that he provided, and they just look at him. You know, keeping in mind only the propaganda that the Justice Department would have you believe. You know, they forget that without Snowden, we wouldn't have any idea, for example, that that NSA was spying on us, especially after the law specifically prohibited NSA from spying on American citizens or U.S. persons. So he's just afraid that that the truth is going to be lost in this in this partisan bickering that we're experiencing now. Well, I think we all are lost about this partisan bickering because it seems to be at a new level as yeah, of the last two years. I've never seen anything like this in my lifetime. And I'm a I'm a political animal. I really am. I always have been, but I've never seen anything like this. So is, is he right? Is he going to get lost in the shuffle with all this um, Trump stuff, or is it going to come out? Honestly, I think he's going to get lost in the shuffle. And I hate to say that. I really hate to say it, but... But there's just so much out there that 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 leads us in wrong directions. I'll say it that way. That you, you forget you forget the truth, and the truth is what he revealed. And even that, we only know a fraction of what he revealed. Okay, it just you know dumbfounds me that you and several others and him and are fighting this fight for good, solid things in my book. I mean, I'll be the first to say it. Things we need to know. And yet, and here we're talking about them getting blown over and, and lost in the the big picture of things. You know, you look at these most recent cases, too. Reality Winner, for example, getting more than five years in prison uh, for leaking a a document that probably shouldn't have been classified in the first place. And um, and uh, Terry Albury, the FBI agent in, in Minneapolis, who got uh, what was it four and a half years, four and a quarter years for for sending a document confirming systemic racism at the FBI uh, over to the Intercept, and uh, and now Chelsea Manning's back in jail. So to me, it's just getting worse and worse. You know, there was an important study that was published yesterday by the Federation of American Scientists. They follow these issues very closely. And um, they said that, on average, Barack Obama uh, brought four, I'm sorry, brought 40 criminal referrals per year to the Justice Department for leaks or alleged leaks. Uh, so far in the first two years of the Trump administration, they've referred 120 per year uh, to the Justice Department for prosecution. So, you know, there's usually a lag of 9 to 18 months between referral and the actual arrest. And we're right at, you know, that period right now of about 12 months. So I don't know if we should expect massive arrests of, of leakers and whistleblowers or if they're just referring everything and the FBI is deciding to sit on it. There's just no way to tell. That's blows my mind because you'd think, I I guess what you want to keep secret is what you want to keep secret. doesn't matter what it is. Right. And, you know, again, that's an important point. But we actually have classification laws in this country. And it's it's a crime, although it's never been prosecuted. It's a crime to over-classify a document or to classify a document solely for the purpose of of preventing the government from being embarrassed over something. And that happens every single day. 
I'm sorry, the government are, is worried about embarrassing themselves. Have they looked at themselves lately in the mirror? Yeah. So let's say they do something that's embarrassing. They just put a secret sticker at the top and the bottom of the page, and then it's classified. And that's that's not legal. And so I'm sitting here thinking because, you know, I do this wide range of topics. I'm sitting here thinking about the JFK assassination, and you're telling me, they, you know, something stupid. And then these, these two lines click in my head, and I'm like, well... Maybe, maybe not. I'm not going to ask. I'm not going to put you on the spot about that, but yikes. Oliver Stone and I uh, disagree on the Kennedy assassination, but that's probably a topic for another another show. <laughs> oh, man, you're, 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 I've got a half page, well, over a half page of notes, so yeah, it probably is another, another show, but I'm not afraid of that. But, um, what, well, first, let, let's, um, Let's promote. Uh, you have the, your show that you're doing on Sputnik, and the book's still out there floating around. Let's, before we get lost in the deep conversation, let's promote you before, because like I said, I know how the show turns out. I'll be saying, "Okay, John, and bye," and we'll forget. So let's do it now. Well, um, I have a show that's on every day on the Sputnik Network. It's on terrestrial radio here in DC, 105.5 FM and 13.90 AM from 4 to 6 PM. Uh, it's called Loud and Clear. It's also uh, turned into a podcast every night on uh, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spreaker, and Spotify. And um, it also goes on, later in the evening, uh, 17 terrestrial uh, community radio channels around the country. So we have about about 40,000 listeners a day, and uh, it's a good fit for me. Did you ever think you'd be doing this? I mean, doing that. Absolutely. No. No. So so, I I never in my life thought I'd be working for the Russians. And so they offered me this job when I first got home and, uh, and I, I turned it down and, um, and then they came back to me a year later and asked me if I wanted the job and I, I needed a job. So I said, look, I'd like to do it, but in good conscience, I, I, you know, I have real problem working for the Russians. I said, if I take this job, I want to have complete freedom to criticize anybody I want, including Vladimir Putin. And they said, done. And I said, are you willing to put that in writing in my contract? They said, yes. And they did. And so just to give you an example, do you remember the Novichok attack in uh, England, in York, where a Russian dissident was uh, was poisoned with this nerve gas, Novichok? Oh, yeah, vaguely, yeah. Uh, about a year ago. Well, my co my co-host asked me who I thought did it. He had been talking about the Russian mafia and the CIA and all these different organizations. I said the Russians did it. He said, "Well, how can you be so sure?" I said, "Because the Russians always poison people. They've always done this kind of thing. Besides the fact that Novichok was invented by the Russians, they're the only ones who use it." And he laughed, but you know that was that was that freedom that I insisted on having in my contract they they let me say whatever i want and for the record lee stranahan who is there on the mornings at sputnik is a friend of the show he's been on the show a couple times for everybody who under who's heard that name and can't play sputnik that's why right right yeah lee's a great guy and it's funny i i sort of went there from the left and lee went from the right and um it makes for good radio well they got good people there that's all that's all to say that so yeah, I do my show with Brian Becker, uh, who's a, a lifelong uh, peace and social justice activist, and I have a great deal of respect for Brian. He's brilliant, first of all. He's one of the most, he's one of the best informed people I've ever worked with, and uh, yeah, I like it. Like I said, it's a good fit. So let's get back to Licky Links and uh, Edwin Stoder for a minute. What, what are your what were your original thoughts when you seen those starting to come out? WikiLeaks, you mean back in 2010, 2011? Yeah, back, when it, back when it first, you know, hit, hit. I'll, I'll just say it, when the shit hit the fan the first time. <laughs> oh, I'll tell you. I, I've done a 180 on these issues. I was working for John Kerry at the time. I was one of four senior staff members, and I was the chief investigator on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And Kerry called us all together that night, the night that, that Chelsea Manning made the giant data dump. Um. And he asked us what we thought. And a couple of the guys were like, this is good. This is good for transparency. 
and it's good for um, freedom of speech, and it's good for this, it's good for that. And I was like, no, you can't just decide you're going to release classified information. You know, there are ways to do this. And Manning's motivation was that he just wanted to go home, and his his major wouldn't let him go home. And so to get back at her, he uh, he just released all this stuff. Well, I've done a complete 180 because I've come to understand that motivation is irrelevant. All that matters is that the information released exposed waste, fraud, abuse, illegality, or threats to the public health or public safety. And that is exactly what he did. Well, now she. That's exactly what she did. So I said in an op-ed that I wrote just a couple days ago for the American Conservative, you don't have to like Chelsea Manning. You don't have to want to go out for a beer with Chelsea Manning to have respect for what Chelsea Manning did. Because Chelsea Manning is the only reason that we know that our troops in Iraq committed war crimes. That's the only way we know is because she told us. And that, to me, that's a, that's a great public service. Yeah. I mean, that's echoes what you were doing. I'd like to think so. You know, I raised I raised concerns inside the agency back in 2002, and I became known as the human rights guy, and that was not a compliment. It actually set me back uh, in promotions. But, uh, but sometimes you have to call a spade a spade. If something's wrong, you just have to say it's wrong. You know, I, I say in speeches all the time that at the CIA, the culture is such that they want you to think that everything is a shade of gray. And that's just simply not true. Some things are black and white. They're right and wrong. And if something's really wrong and you know it in your gut, you have to step up and say something. Yeah, I mean, it's just crazy to think about the, the, the spot you were put in. I mean, the spot other people were put in and just look the other way, too. Well, I'll tell you, on the day of my arrest, I got an email from a retired deputy director of the CIA. A deputy director of the CIA. And he said to me, you have chosen a difficult road. I'm glad somebody did. I only wish that I had had the guts to do it. That meant the world to me. For him to take the chance, I mean, what was to keep me from releasing that to the media? And he didn't say, please don't tell anybody, but, I mean, it was a courageous thing for him to do. And, and that, just, that just confirmed that I had done the right thing. Yeah, well, you, I, think, I think you did. I'm sure you believe that now, too. I do. I do. I believe that I did. I, I'm very comfortable with my decisions. You have, you have to be, though. Well, I mean, I'm sure there was moments where you weren't, but... Oh, yeah. I had regrets along the way, without a doubt. But at the end of the day, you know, no. You just have to go for it. So let's jump over to Julian Assange for a minute. What happens if the Ecuadorian embassy dumps him out on the street? Oh, unfortunately, that's that's very clear. Um, he will be arrested immediately uh, by British authorities. They have a warrant out for his arrest for failure to appear, which is as ridiculous as it sounds. <laughs> is that just a parking ticket thing, too? It is, and it's failure to appear to face a charge that no longer exists. Those charges have been dismissed. And so it's really just a ruse. Um, he'll be arrested and he'll be turned over to the FBI. Um, they already sent a rendition flight to, uh, to the UK three or four weeks ago, and then it returned empty. But they'll do it again. They'll send their, their plane, and they will render him to the Eastern District of Virginia, which is right here in Alexandria, Virginia, the espionage court, where we've all been charged. Um, Snowden, Jeffrey Sterling, me... Julian, everybody's been charged, all with the same judge, Judge Giuliani Brinkema. And so um, Julian doesn't have a chance. And, and I've told him this, and I've told his, his attorneys this as well. He doesn't have a chance. Judge Brinkema will not allow him to mount a defense. And if he goes to trial, and you know he will because the government won't offer him anything. If he goes to trial, his jury is going to be made up of either employees of or family members of employees of the CIA, the FBI, the Pentagon, the Department of Homeland Security, and intelligence community contractors. He doesn't have a prayer. 
But wait, John, how does that even enter in the equation? I know, I know this is stupid because this is a stupid question, but I'm just going to ask it. How is that a fair trial? Yeah, exactly. It's not a fair trial. When, when I decided to go to trial and uh, turn down the government's um, offer, final offer, uh, we blocked off two weeks for jury selection. And the judge said, absolutely not. She said, you get one day. If you can't see the jury in one day, then you need to talk about a plea. Well, another thing we did was we made 70 motions asking the judge to declassify 70 documents that I needed to defend myself to prove that I hadn't uh, violated the law. And so we blocked off two days for the 70 motions, and we went into the courtroom, and she said, I am going to make this easy for everybody, and I am going to deny all 70 of these motions. And my lawyers objected, and she overruled them, and they called for a conference, and she denied that. And as we were walking out of the courtroom, I said to my lead attorney, what just happened? And he said, we just lost the case. That's what happened. She's not going to let you defend yourself. And I said, well, what do we do now? And he said, now we talk about a plea. Well, the same thing's going to happen to to Julian, at least. I I don't even know that they'll want to talk about a plea with him. I suspect that they'll want to make an example of him. And I'm going to sit here and guess that the trial behind uh, closed doors and sealed off because it's the interest of national security and nobody will actually know what goes on in the room. You're exactly right. It's called a SIPA trial. It stands for Classified Information Protection Act. So what they do is they will clear the courtroom of everybody except the defendant and his attorneys, the uh, prosecutors, the judge, the bailiff, and the clerk. And then they, they literally physically seal the courtroom, right? They cover the windows. They lock the doors. They put tape around the doors so you can't hear anything out in the hall. And then that's it, with the jury, of course, uh, being in there as well. That's it. There's no media. Nobody's going to have any idea what's going on in there. I'm sitting here going, again, how does this equal a fair trial? And the guy's not even an American citizen. You know? He's clearly a journalist. He's he's re- received myriad journalism uh, prizes. And we're supposed to believe that, no, he's not a journalist. And WikiLeaks is not a journalistic organization. It's a non-state intelligence service, according to Mike Pompeo. Well, I don't think anybody will confuse me with an intelligence service. That's good news. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that was cheap. And, well, I guess it was at my expense, so that makes it right, okay? Uh-huh. <laughs> but this, these, whole, these whole dog and pony shows just frustrate me. No yeah. I can't imagine your frustration with it. I mean, you've lived through it. And it's terrible. And it doesn't get any better, ever. It just keeps getting worse. And, you know, it's, a, it's, it's like the Justice Department realizes that they have found a workable formula to prosecute people. You know, Barack Obama was the one that opened these floodgates with his prosecution of, of eight different whistleblowers, which is almost three times the number of all previous presidents combined. And Donald Trump, saw, I shouldn't even say Donald Trump so much as it was uh, Jeff Sessions, saw that that the formula worked. And so uh, so he went after, so far, reality winner and uh, Terry Albury with, according to Sessions, at least two dozen others waiting in the wings. Which is just crazy. Okay, so I teased the show with, you think you know how the world changed on 9-11, but you have no idea. Yeah, yeah, so true. So, so take, take, take me 9/11? back to 9-12-01. Yeah, what happened, what happened on 9-12 is that, is that almost every American was willing to do literally anything to, to conquer uh, al-Qaeda and to kill or capture Osama bin Laden and the other principals. And we didn't even realize that by the end of October, we had just voluntarily given away our civil liberties. You know, the the Patriot Act, nobody even read the Patriot Act before it was passed. And the Patriot Act has just stripped us of whatever freedoms uh, we once had. We will never have our September 10th country back. Which is no good. No way. 
I mean, I don't even know how we get back to somewhere with even on the same. I'm looking at my notebook, same page. To that, it yeah, just, it keeps continues to spiral. It does it just gets worse and worse and worse? And now you have NSA. You know, it was a part of NSA's charter to not spy on Americans. When I first joined the CIA, if NSA accidentally picked up the communication of an American, or not even an American, but what's called a U.S. person, that is any anybody here on a green card, uh, all hell would break loose. Uh, they would have to uh, yank this piece out of the system. They would have to send a, a memorandum to the Congressional Oversight Committees saying that they had accidentally intercepted the communications of an American citizen. And then they would have to send a second follow-up memo to the Oversight Committees telling them what they were going to do to ensure that it never happened again. Well, now NSA is charged with intercepting the communications of all American citizens, and they have enough disk space, so to speak, at their facilities in both uh, uh, Maryland and Utah to keep a record of every phone call, every text message, and every email of every American citizen for the next several hundred years. Now, I, I, you, you said a three-letter word in there that is very important. You said all. All. Every American. Not just the not the ones that are suspected of these criminal acts, not the ones that are shady. Everyone. You're absolutely right. And that was once illegal and it, it should still be illegal. Yeah, well I mean I mean I'm glad somebody's gonna listen to this, but let's hear her there. <laughs> I mean I I prefer it be people interested in it, not people trying to uh, cause us both misery, I guess, for the lack of a better word. It's just terrible. Now, every year, Congress has to vote to um, to reauthorize these elements of the Patriot Act. And every year it is reauthorized. But over the last five or six years since Ed Snowden went public, uh, there have been more and more votes to strip NSA of this authority. So little by little... We're getting there. But being the crazy person I am, even if they vote to change it, will anything actually happen? I doubt it. it it's just too much information. Once once they've had a taste of the poison fruit, uh, they, they can't, you know, untaste it. So I guess this leads to the, the deep state question. How deep does it go? Well, first of all, there really is a deep state, and you can call it whatever you want. You can call it the deep state. You can call it the federal bureaucracy. Uh, Brian Becker, my colleague on the radio show, calls it the state, the government. Um, but yeah, there is a deep state, and the reason it's so dangerous is because it's completely unelected, and its overseers on Capitol Hill really aren't overseers so much as they are uh, cheerleaders. And so... You know, at the CIA, at the at the higher levels, this what's called the Senior Intelligence Service, they know. <laughs> and in the meantime, <clears throat> hold on, John. You'll, you'll love this. My my Skype yeah. my Skype just dropped for a second, so okay. rewind a few minutes here. <laughs> Not that anybody's listening or I'm accusing anybody of that. So, sorry, you were in the middle of a great point, and then I looked over, and I'm like, everything's... I think, I think it only kicked off for a second. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay, so I'll start again. Yeah. Um, what the heck was I... Okay, yeah. So, at the CIA, in the, in the leadership, uh, at the leadership level, what's called the Senior Intelligence Service, they know that presidents are going to come and go, four years, eight years, it doesn't matter, because they're there for 25 years, 30 years, even 35 years. And they know that they can outweigh a president, any president. And so that's what they do. If they don't like a president's policies, they just ignore it. That's just incredible. Just to think about that. I mean, 30 years is, what, three and a half presidents? Well, in eight years. Right. Right. 
It's a long time. You know, and I saw it myself. There were so many people at, at the uh, at the top of the CIA that just loathed Bill Clinton. They loathed the guy because he had a, a focus on human rights, and he forced the CIA to undergo what's called a cull, where they go through literally every recruited assets file to see if there are any human rights concerns, and if there are, they fire the guy, and they break off the relationship. Well, the CIA lost you know, fully one-third of their sources that way. And they never forgave Bill Clinton. But they knew they could outweigh him. And they did. And then George W. Bush became president, and then they rehired everybody. Well, then 9-11 happened. They rehired everybody plus 12 people. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I wish I could give you some of the numbers. They're, they're still classified, unfortunately. But, yeah. Yeah, it just, it just changed everything. Because I've seen on Silence, they were talking about push anything, the documentary that you were featured in, they were talking about push anything or, you know, anything that you need, just write it up and send it in because it's going to get paid for. And oh, I'm yeah. Like, I, I think I mentioned in Silence that I, I went to the chief of the counterterrorism service, uh, counterterrorism center, rather, Cofer uh, uh, Black, and I said, Cofer, I've got an operation that I need to talk to you about. And he said, he put up his hands and he said, listen, whatever it is, just do it. I have so much money, I can't possibly spend it all. And so I did. I just, I did it. I just, that just baffles my mind as a person who, you know, tries to be a, I don't want to say conservative, but not necessarily that liberal. Uh, sure. <laughs> it's just, oh boy. Yep. Take a breath, collect myself. A uh, question from my chatter here wants to wants me to ask you about QAnon. Right? Is that you? No, no. <laughs> Although I'm very entertained by QAnon. You know, some of the things QAnon says are right on, and then some of the things they say they're kind of wacky. So I, I, I can't figure out who they are. I, I honestly don't know. Do you think it is a single person though? Or do you I think do. it's okay? I, I was, was going to say you don't think it's multiple people because I've seen that floated around. That yeah, I, I do. I think it's multiple people. I do because that would explain the well. Hopefully, it explains the inconsistencies. That's exactly what I was thinking. And oftentimes they are inconsistent, especially as these conspiracies grow more and more complicated. It's it's crazy, man. How did we get here? I today? know. And I've just never, ever in my life have I seen it this partisan. You know, I've been in Washington since 1982. I told you, a week after my 18th birthday, I came to Washington and, and for all practical purposes didn't leave. But I've never seen it this ugly and this mean-spirited. Hey, you remember Vince Foster, of course. Yeah. So Vince Foster, in his suicide note, said that he had never lived and worked in a city where people ruined each other for sport. And that is so true. I mean, that's that's Washington in a nutshell right there. And it's just gotten worse over the last 10 years. And, and this is this is not only stupid questions, I just have to say out loud, how does it get better? Yeah, I know, right? Um, I, you know, my, there's no easy solution. I would say that it, that to get better, it has to start on Capitol Hill. As as recently as the late 1990s, Democrats and Republicans used to share group houses together on on Capitol Hill. There would be there would be Democratic and Republican uh, poker games every Friday night. You know, these guys loved each other. They would go to dinner together. They would go on vacation together, and you know, drive home to their home districts together. And none of that happens anymore. I mean, because so honestly, at the end of the day, we're kind of, you know, different. So I mean, we can agree to disagree on things and still carry on the conversation. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I've my own personal situation is kind of unique uh, because as a whistleblower, I've attracted a lot of support from the left and from the right. And I appreciate both. And I like to think that that on this issue, this and other issues, we can we can all agree and and that just tells me that there are other issues on which we can all agree if we just, you know, stop calling each other names for a few minutes. You know, another thing, too, look at look at Donald Trump. 
Uh, Donald Trump is a divisive, polarizing figure. But Donald Trump says a lot of things that I know Democrats can agree with. Donald Trump said during the campaign that he wanted a massive infrastructure bill, for example. Uh, another example is these trade wars with with Mexico, Canada, the European Union, China. The unions love this stuff for the most part, so long as they don't drag on too long and, and have sanctions uh, impact jobs here. But but there are a lot of things that Democrats can agree with Donald Trump on, but they don't allow themselves to. And the Republicans did the same thing with Barack Obama. If, Bar- if Barack Obama was for something, they were against it, plain and simple. And that's why we never had criminal justice reform during the Obama administration, because the Republicans in the Senate would let it go to the floor. And that, that needs to change. So I uh, make pred- I do a prediction show in November for the next year. So I'm like 13 months out, like, you know, from the end of that year. So sometimes yeah. it gets a little wild. But I pre- I've, I've been predicting for a while now, I'm going to keep saying it until it comes true, that we're going to get a third or fourth, hopefully fourth and third party out there kind uh, of so. pushing, the middle, putting, putting the middle back together in all of this. Man, I hope so. Uh, we we need a viable third party. You know, in 2016, well, I'm going to go back. I'll go back to 2012. After my arrest, I got a call from Gary Johnson, uh, the former governor of New Mexico, who was the 2012 Libertarian Party's nominee for president. And we had a really great conversation. He said he thought I had been screwed. And was there anything that he could do to help me? And I said, oh, thank you. I, I don't think there's anything anybody can do to help me, but I appreciate the thought. Well, I didn't know that after I went to prison, he wrote a letter to the attorney general saying, what's wrong with you? Release this man so he could go earn money for his family to put food on the table. It was a very generous thing for him to do. He put his reputation on the line for me. And then when I got out of prison in February of 2015, Boy, I had only been home a couple of days, and the phone rang, and it was Gary Johnson again. And he asked if I would travel with him uh, during the campaign and introduce him at campaign stops, and I gladly did it. So um, in late 2016, we went to 12 uh, states together uh, from from the West Coast to uh, to the Midwest, and I introduced him at, at every campaign stop. I did an op-ed for him in uh, the uh, – what's it called the salt lake city tribune um i i thought that i thought that maybe we were looking at something because it was such an unusual political year and and the polls back then i'm talking about october of 2016 showed that he could actually win utah and new mexico which would have been just incredible uh he didn't win either state but he got something like 23 percent in new mexico and double digits in in Utah, Uh, that proved to me that the Libertarian Party is not the party that's going to be the alternative. There's got to be something else, maybe something in the middle uh, that might be viable. But to do that, you need a whole lot of money. And I mean like a billion dollars, a lot of money in order to organize. When you were saying whole lot of money, I seen Mr. Burns from The Simpsons in my head. Excellent. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's, I mean, that, that's the type of money you're, because, I mean, the money that's in politics and in, in campaigns now is just, I think, I'm, I'm almost pretty sure they're, they're printing it themselves. I, I don't know where it comes from. You know, I, you see, you see Beto O'Rourke and Bernie Sanders raising millions and millions of dollars in 24 hours or 48 hours. It's, it's truly incredible. And then Obama, Obama spent a billion dollars in his race. He, he was the, the first one to spend that much. I believe that, that Trump and, and Hillary Clinton spent a billion apiece as well, you know, along with DNC and RNC money. But my God, where does this money come from? It's crazy. It, it's, it's polluting the whole political process. And, that, and that, that's why I keep saying this, but I, I, or I've, I've resigned myself to think that unless Mr. Burns gives me a loan... <laughs> It's just never going to materialize because there's too much money on either side to keep yeah. keep the game going for them. Oh, yeah. agreed. Agreed. So the other hot-button political issue of the day is the Mueller report. Are we ever going to see that? Yeah, I think so. Um, Attorney General Barr said this morning that um, he's going to 
not just send the redacted report up to Congress by the end of the week, but he's going to sit with with these committees and go line by line by line and explain why it's redacted. And I think really that's the most we can expect. In a report like this, um, some things have to be redacted, not because they're classified, they're unclassified, but because there are innocent people who come up in these investigations and they're innocent of any crime, but they have to be mentioned in the reports to keep other information in context. And so you've got to protect the identities of those people. You have to you have to protect their privacy. Things like that have to be redacted. There may be sources and methods also that ought to be redacted, although I'm going to put an asterisk there and say anything having to do with the FISA court and FISA warrants ought to be um, released because we have a right to know why the FISA court turns down one-tenth of one percent of warrant requests and why they renewed the warrant against Carter Page, what was it, four times when they knew that he was not working for the Russians and there was no evidence to indicate that he had colluded with the Russians. Yeah, I mean, that's just the whole thing just... It's morally bankrupt. And again, I don't know where that ends because if for some reason... The other side wins in 2020. Guess what's going to happen again? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's, Same it'll be, thing. It'll be somebody else's report. Yeah, nothing's going to change. Both parties are equally guilty of this. I just, I don't know. John, help me out here. Just point <laughs> me in the right direction. Where, where's something positive? What, what, should, what should we be talking about that makes me feel better? <laughs> I, I, I'm I'm worried for the country. I really am. I, I said that a year ago, and friends friends made fun of me. I said I I actually fear for the country, and I've never said that before. How long? I mean, we're aware of some of the stuff. I'm going to say some of the stuff because I don't think any either. I don't feel comfortable saying all of the stuff at this moment that's yeah. going on. I mean, how long until I hate the I hate the bash of millennials, but they're the driving force of this next. 40 years. They are. So I think there are two ways we get out of it. One is good and the other is bad. The good one is the millennials. Um, they are less tied to political parties than any previous generation. And that's a good thing. Uh, the bad the bad thing is really the only other thing that would unify us is a, is a natural, not natural, but a national disaster. You know, we always pull together when there's a disaster. Whether it's 9-11 or Katrina or whatever, we always pull together. We always rally around the president, especially when it's something that comes from outside. And um, I think that's not the way we want to unify. No, because, I mean, you meant, I mean, I hate to dwell on 9-11, but the state that it put us in from then till present, I don't know if we could sustain another step. I don't even know if that's a step. Yep. lunge that direction. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I wish I had I wish I had an answer for you. I I really don't. We need to figure this out. We need to, we need to be in front of this. But yeah. you're right about millennials. They're What did I hear? What was that statistic? Millennials are 45 times less likely to join some uh, like a political party or a service organization or any of these, you know, things that are just like classic American Churches, Masons, any of these clubs, etc., like forty-five times less likely. Yep. I don't know if that's good news or bad news because are are they going to be engaged enough to care to fix the problem, or are they just going to be indifferent like they are that's, to all these other things? Yeah, that that's the sixty-four thousand dollar question right there, because they may just not care about these issues, and if if that's the case, then we're going to continue seeing polarization and with less and less participation. And then it just continues to slide. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's not good either. We, John, we got to fix this. We got to, we can't wait for them to, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how. No, I wish I did. Somebody out there has an answer. We just got to figure it out and we got to get it out there. That's the other thing. Getting people to agree with us is a whole nother ball of wax. We could have the answer. We'd have the answer. That'd be it. Maybe, maybe we could convince a third or fourth person, but. Indeed. 
So, I don't want to rehash all that stuff that's already been out there, but take me back to the transition after you you left prison. What was it like coming back? I mean, all your, like, I just picked, I'm picturing the tree with the roots pulled up and then you're trying to put the tree back in the ground. Yeah, I made a mistake thinking that I could just step back into my life again and everything was going to be fine. It was far, far more difficult um, when I got home from prison than I ever expected it would be. Uh, for the life of me, I couldn't find work anywhere. I mean, I, I got turned down by Target, by Safeway, McDonald's. I mean, I, I literally couldn't get a job anywhere, not even at minimum wage. And um, I ended up I ended up getting a job at the uh, as a fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies. It's the oldest uh, left-wing think tank here in Washington. But I had to raise my own salary. And so all I did was fundraising, like 24-7 fundraising, just to give myself the minimum wage. Uh, and then they had a layoff, and they laid off 14 people. And I was, of course, you know, one of the first to go. So I had terrible trouble finding work. Um, I had PTSD, which I didn't even realize I had. And then my wife left me. So it was way, way more difficult than I had ever anticipated. And then how, how did you get from there? That uh, I mean, guess that guess that would be the actual low point. Because we, we would all sit here and assume that it would be day 300 in prison. But it doesn't sound that way. No. You know, prison prison is a horrible experience, of course. And I, I was not in a country club prison. I was in an actual, honest-to-God prison. Um, you know, you're depressed. Everybody's depressed. But I had something to look forward to. I, I had a short sentence. I was very friendly with um, with the Italians, in quotation marks, the Italians in prison. And one of them gave me some really good advice. We were walking the track one day, and he said to me, how much time do you have anyway? And I said, 30 months, and it feels like 30 years. And he laughed, and he said, 30 months you could do standing on your head. He said, but I'm going to give you some advice. If anybody asks you how much time you have, you tell them five years. If they know that you only have two and a half years, they're going to kick your ass. And so that's what I did. I told everybody that I had five years, and then one day I was gone. I was just released. It was good advice. Makes sense. Solid advice. I mean, I hope never need it, but yep. file that away just in case. So back to that low point. So how did you, I mean, you had to go find another job and then you got a lot yeah. on a Sputnik and you were Yeah. And you know, I, I, I had to, I had to start taking advantage of my own notoriety. I'm, I'm famous for better or for worse. Uh, I'm, Beloved in Greece. I mean, I, I went to Greece five times last year because the Greek government hired me to help them write a new whistleblower protection law. And every time I fly over, uh, TV crews meet me at the airport. Oh, he's arrived again. He's back. You know, local boy made good. So they love me there. In fact, I, I have a friend who's a member of the European Parliament, and he's been actively trying to recruit me to run for the European Parliament. I said, I can't commute to Brussels. <laughs> crazy, and he said, "No, you'd win. They love you here." I said, "Well, thank you, but I, I'm not running for the European Parliament. I, I'm a Greek citizen. I should add, I, I got my Greek citizenship right after my arrest. The Greeks rallied to my side and um, and gave me citizenship based on the fact that all four of my grandparents were Greek citizens. Um, and then in Europe, you know, I, I lecture in Europe a lot. Uh, I was invited to speak at the Munich Film Festival last year, so I, I gave speeches in Berlin. Munich, Luxembourg, uh, Brussels, and uh, Dublin. And in Luxembourg, I was at dinner with the Minister of Justice, and he leaned over at one point and he said, he said, if you were a Luxembourger, we would have given you the Medal of Freedom. And I said, oh, thank you. I said, yeah, my government gave me a punch in the face. It's a big difference. And then the European Parliament has invited me to speak three times, um, and I get I get the red carpet treatment when I go over there. It's not like it is here in the states where you know I get death threats and people call me a traitor and weak on terrorism and stuff like that. It's very different. But that's how I cobble together a living between the radio show, 
I have a syndicated weekly column at Reader Supported News. I contribute to Consortium News. Um, I do commentary for Al Jazeera. Um, and then these speeches. And then I'm writing my fourth book right now. So a little bit here, a little bit there. And it amounts to a, a decent living. Just incredible to keep try to keep the train on the tracks by piecing it's, things together. It, it, it takes – I'm serious when I say I, I work 16 hours a day. I have to constantly be writing or speaking. So this this question is going to blow your mind, so be prepared. If I made you a intelligence czar, mm-hmm. unofficial position, but, you know, you know, over everything, what would you cha- – What for one day, what, what would be the first things that you would change in the intelligence infrastructure? Wow. That's it. <laughs> I told you it was going to blow your mind. Yeah, that's a good question. Well, number number one, um, no more extraordinary renditions. Uh, that's just a violation of so many laws, both domestic and international. I don't even know where to begin. All it is is kidnapping, and it's kidnapping for the purpose of torture. That's got to end. Um, I'm not convinced that we've done away with the torture program. I'm not convinced that the CIA doesn't have black sites. I think that they're just trying to wait out the uh, McCain-Feinstein Amendment and uh, and hope that a friendlier president like Donald Trump changes things again. So I would I would make sure that those places don't exist anymore. Um, I would make training in human rights mandatory for all CIA officers. And training in ethics, you know, as crazy as it sounds, uh, there is literally no ethics training at the CIA. Nothing. Not a single class. Not for five minutes. You have to go into the CIA with your own set of moral and ethical values because they are not going to teach it to you. And that's why we get in so much trouble at the CIA because people do stupid things that they believe are, you know, outside the box and there's nobody to to say, listen, knucklehead, what are you doing? This is illegal. It's immoral. It's unethical and you shouldn't be doing it. So they need training. I would do that as well. That is just... You know, we've we've talked for almost an hour now, and that is probably the, the most damning thing you've said. It's awful, really awful. And you, I mean, you've been part of some damning things as we've, I mean, come across, and well, you know, we've scratched give, the surface on you. But go ahead. Let me give you an example. The night we captured Abu Zubaydah, we caught a lot of people. I'm not allowed to say the number. I'm allowed to say it was many dozens of Al Qaeda fighters. We also made a couple of mistakes. And we caught an old man and his two sons who were totally innocent. So my colleagues marched these guys in to the safe house at like 3.30 in the morning for interrogation. And they're wearing sacks over their heads. And I said to this idiot who was the, the point guy for that raid, I was, I was in charge. I said, why are they wearing hoods? And he said, well, we don't want them to see our, our identities, our faces. I said, have none of you guys, seriously, have none of you guys ever read the Geneva Convention? You are not allowed to put hoods on them. This is a violation of international law. I said, get those hoods off. And then I pulled the hoods off. And I said to the guy, on behalf of the United States government, I apologize for my colleagues putting hoods on you. And then when we realized that these guys were totally innocent of of anything, what had happened was they were the only people in the neighborhood that had a phone. And so people would go to their house and give them five rupees to make a phone call. Well, somebody from Al-Qaeda was going to their house and making phone calls to Al-Qaeda fighters. And so we raid the house and we grabbed the innocent people. So, so I said to the Pakistani general that I was dealing with, I said, what do we do to make this up to these people? And he said, buy them a new door and buy them new shoes. They, they were so poor they didn't have shoes. So we hired a carpenter. We bought this really nice door the next day to fix their door. We bought them shoes, and I gave them $150, which is all I had in my pocket. And that evening, they were on the Pakistani news, and they were saying that, yes, the Americans broke down their door at 2 o'clock in the morning and put hoods on them and took them to this strange place, but they were very nice, and they apologized, and they made good on everything. And I I thought, well, you know, at least we had that. But these guys, my colleagues, were ready to brutalize these three men. They were ready to really go off the edge because, well, 
their phone was calling Al-Qaeda, they must be Al-Qaeda. And there's no moral training. There are no guidelines for how you treat people until you can confirm who they are. And besides that, if they were Al-Qaeda, they should have faced justice. You know, when we first started capturing people, um, I called headquarters and I said, I said, what do I do with these guys? We had caught, we had caught two Egyptians who were members of Egyptian Islamic Jihad. We caught them in, in, uh, Islamabad in a safe house, an EIJ safe house. And EIJ was later absorbed into Al Qaeda. So I called headquarters. I said, what do we do with these guys? And he said, put them on a C12. We're going to send them to uh, Guantanamo. And I said, Guantanamo, Cuba? And he said, yeah. I said, why in the world would we send people to Cuba? And he said, well, we've come up with this plan. We're going to send them all to Cuba until we can farm them out to different federal districts in the U.S. and put them on trial. So they'll be tried in Boston, New York, and Washington. We're just going to divide them up. And I said, oh, that's a good idea, right? Because the Constitution says that no matter who they are, they have a right to face a jury of their peers. And that never happened. Never. And it never will. John, first, thank you for standing up. Uh, thank you. Thanks Second. for your support. Second, thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure. It was a good conversation. Thanks for having me. Anytime you want to come back, you know where to find me. Thanks a lot. And if you're ever in this neck of the woods, look me up. We'll have a burger together. Or a burger. That sounds like a lot of fun because I know some of the best burger places in western Pennsylvania. So, <laughs> thank you, sir. My pleasure. Good night. Okay. Now maybe maybe if Skype will. <laughs> no, it's not. Okay. There it is. <laughs> it, it started this way and it ends this way with Skype malfunction. Thanks, ah. John. <laughs> Anytime. You have a good night. Oh, there we go. Thanks, John. Seriously. Nope. Nope. No joke there. Um. Wow. Um. I knew John. I was going to bring it tonight and uh, I didn't realize how much he would bring it. Now we mentioned the milestone off the top. I've got roughly two minutes left and I'm going to take full advantage of this at this moment. Having done 400 of these now, well, very close to have done 400 of these. This conversation tonight reminds me Deeply, why I moved the football forward and needed to talk other things besides paranormal. There's a lot at stake in the world right now. That's why I moved the ball forward and needed to talk that, the other stuff, everything that's leading up to this, the last hundred shows. I needed that. I need that for my soul. I need to do good. I need to help the world understand what's going on. For me, for you, for everybody out there, I need that. I feel the need to share that with you. That's why I moved the show. Right there. To get to talk to awesome people with awesome stories, horrendous stories, awesome stories, however you want to cut that pie. Cut that pie. John, again, thank you. From the bottom of my heart for doing the right thing. Having said all that, here's to the next 400, 600, whatever it's going to be. I just know that you're along the journey with me. And I, I'm glad to have you. And with that, I want to wish everybody a good night, even though I swore up and down I was going to quit saying that. Views and opinions expressed on the Mallard Report are those of the host and participants. For past shows, social media links, and so much more, visit Mallard.com, M-A-L-L-I-A-R-D.com. And thanks for listening.
In a world infatuated with comic fandom comes a show to help us remember the talents that have inspired us. Whoa, 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 cut. Oh, come on. It was not bad. It's a bit dramatic. Let's just tell them about the show, guys. We are the Canned Air Podcast. Join us weekly for a comedic trip through pop culture. We also welcome some cool comic creators, as well as some of the voice and screen actors that help shape your childhood. Find us on cannedairpodcast.com and on the Evergreen Podcast Network. 